Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 10th, 2022. The Legitimate Political Discourse Edition. Just noting that this title follows some discussion about whether this should be called the Gazpacho Edition. And Emily and John think it should be called and the Gazpacho Edition. Would, and I didn't. But recording that discussion it. discussion that took place be considered by the committee Legitimate Political Discourse? We will get to that. You're going to have to keep listening. That, of course, was John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning from New York. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. And... Making up the trio, the the uh, jazz saxophone of this trio, the oboe, the the viola, the cello, not sure what is, of course, Emily Basil. I like all of those choices. Which one would you want to be? Everything except the drums. I don't want to be the Wait, drums. Why, why not the drums? Some... The drums keep it all in time. Too much pressure. Um, do oh, we have okay. to explain the gazpacho joke that uh, Representative no, Marjorie? Come okay, on, okay. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> People can look it up. That's what they do at the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. They explain everything. Yes, we earnestly try to include everyone in our discourse, legitimate or not. (laughs) May I pose a a poll quickly to the group? Uh, Who here legitimately likes gazpacho? Me. No, I do too. I do too. There was some... Not me. It has to be done done right or or else you're just just serving salsa. But uh, uh, if it's done right, it can be fantastic. Love gazpacho, especially watermelon gazpacho. Oh, well, now that's, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Whoa. That doesn't make any Whoa, sense. this is a whole other episode. <laughs> I saw a good tweet about this last night, which was basically saying, yes, I love gazpacho, but basically you have to accept that good gazpacho is just drinking olive oil. No, I, I totally I feel, disagree I, with this. I make really I good like gazpacho, right. and it only has a little bit of olive oil in it. How much garlic does it have? Significant amount of garlic. Excellent. All yeah. right, well, then it's fine. This week, we had a whole discussion about whether gazpacho was even soup the other day, but let's not do it. This week, Supreme Court, the Supreme Court guts the voting rights laws of the United States. We'll talk about that. Then the Republican Party says January 6th was legitimate political discourse. And then what to make of the Canadian trucker protests. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Emily what did the Supreme Court do in the shadowy darkness last week with voting rights? I mean, it wasn't, they call it the shadow docket. I think they did it during daylight hours, but it was shadowy. <laughs> well, it was, right. It was without full briefing and argument and with short concurrence dissent opinions. So it was the shadow docket. What the court decided by a vote of five to four is that the Alabama congressional map will stay in place for the Alabama 2022 elections, even though the three-judge panel that heard the case and took in all the evidence and issued what I think everyone agreed was a very careful decision said that that map was a violation of the Voting Rights Act because it packed in Alabama's black voters to give them a chance to only elect really 
one candidate of their preference. So effectively, Alabama will have a map that has six Republicans, all of whom happen to be white, and one black Democrat, instead of a redrawn map that would have been a two to five map that would have allowed Alabama's black voters to have a chance to elect two um, candidates of their choice. And this is an interpretation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the only part of the Voting Rights Act we really have left that still is supposed to protect against racial gerrymandering, but has been totally sidelined for Alabama. And it looks like the court is really planning to gut it entirely. And I have to say that when I was reading these opinions last night, I felt much worse than when I had read the news stories about the opinion. What? Why? Just go into that a little bit. Well, because ultimately what is going on here is, I would say, a new conflict between the Voting Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution in the view of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court's conservatives like to say that the Equal Protection Clause demands effectively colorblindness. You can't take race into account when you're making laws or policy if you're the government. The Voting Rights Act is all about taking race into account because it's trying to remedy historic discrimination and make sure that um, black Americans in particular, but also um, Latino Americans and um, people who have English as their second language are not being effectively sidelined by the majority in a way that really limits their power to have an effect in elections. So if colorblindness wins out, we are not going to really have Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in any way, shape, or form that prevents against racial gerrymandering. And race-based gerrymandering is the only kind of gerrymandering right now that is actionable in court. So it looks like we are just going to have congressional maps, and in some states, depending on state law, state legislative maps that politicians can draw however they want with really no constraint based on disenfranchising voters. Right. So you can other than state law, other than state law. And I should say we're not here yet. It just looked to me from reading the opinions like that's where the court is heading. But so the idea now is that you can literally gerrymander for any reason you want, except to protect historically discriminated against black voters. Right. So the idea of political gerrymandering, like you have Republicans in power and they make the map so Democrats can't elect their candidates of their choice, the Supreme Court already has refrained from stopping that, no matter how extreme it is. So according to the federal constitution, there are no limits. And so what we have left is race-based gerrymandering. And now, to me, the protection against that looks like it's dangling by a thread or two. David, you were you were essentially saying the practical effect of this is not that it's because it's because they haven't ruled actually ruled yet. Yeah, they haven't ruled. It, the practical effect in Alabama is to leave this map in place and also just not to enforce the current Supreme Court doctrine that is supposed to prevent race-based gerrymandering. So the three-judge panel that ruled in this case applied the factors that are supposed to lead you to remedy a map like this. And the Supreme Court's conservatives said, too bad, too close the election. Meanwhile, the election, the general election, is in November. And the primary is in May. And so effectively, it means that there is no time horizon in which the census can happen, the redistricting can occur, and it could be remedied. But then there's this further concern I have, which is reading the opinions that uh, the conservatives are ready to say, you know what, mm -hmm. no matter what the timing is, we don't think that the Voting Rights Act is constitutional. I mean, that's effectively where they're heading, I think. 27% of the 
state of Alabama is black, then you would have under the map that is surviving 14% of the representation uh, in the one district to, sh- to give people some sense of the, the um, imbalance. Would it, Emily, in, under the previous Voting Rights Act, have required Alabama to go to the Department of Justice to get clearance for this new map under the previous one that hadn't been uh, gutted by the Supreme Court? And then secondarily, on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is it that uh, a, is that the right place to look? And B, does that cover both affirmative efforts to rebalance historic racial prejudice and efforts to stop new attempts to lock in race-based voting? In other words, does it have two functions? Yeah, I mean, when the Voting Rights Act passed in the 60s and when it was renewed several times since then, there were two parts of it. There was Section 2, which is what we're talking about, where you sue after the fact based on this idea that the government has done something that dilutes the power of minority voters to elect the candidate of their choice. Originally, there was also Section 5, which, like you said, meant that the Justice Department in parts of the United States that had low voter registration for black people and other minority groups, that the Justice Department would come in and they had to pre-clear or pre-approve a change that the state made. The Supreme Court effectively took away Section 5 back in 2013 in the Shelby County decision. So we lost that, the country lost that a while ago. And so now what is left is this after-the-fact remedy. And yes, Congress talked about it not only addressing the problems of the past, but Congress saw it as relevant to continuing to protect the interests of minority voters. And so one thing that I think is important to understand is we're not talking about the idea that, like, if you're a black voter, you just get to elect who you want. We're talking about the problem that some candidates, especially minority candidates, black or Latino candidates, have in appealing to cross-racial coalitions across party lines. So if you think you live in a world in which white people are less likely to vote for a black person than someone else, and there's some good data about this, like you can show it in voting patterns with, you know, President Obama, for example, compared to white Democrats running for president, then you'd be concerned about the power of black and Latino voters to elect the candidates of their choice, basically with enough of a coalition of white people or people of other races to kind of make it across the finish line. And that's what Section 2 is supposed to be addressing. Isn't there a sort of partisanship, geography, racial sorting, big issue here too, which is that I I assume that the Alabama Republican Party in drawing these maps was not drawing it because they particularly wanted to disenfranchise black people. They were drawing it because they wanted to disenfranchise Democrats. It's just that in the state of Alabama to be black, that black, black Alabama is the vast majority of the Democratic Party in Alabama. And so the effect of a political gerrymander was to create a racial gerrymander. Like, that's a kind of complicated issue, because if you say that political gerrymandering is okay, then what do you do about the times when the politics and the race sort of are in conflict? Well, so I guess I would start by questioning your premise. I mean, I'm given the history of racism and the presence of racism in the country, I'm not sure that you can say that people who are gerrymandering the map don't have some racial impetus, but it's super, super hard to prove that, right? So, like, that's an issue. I mean... 
It might be that if we were starting all over again, it would make more sense to have protections against political gerrymandering, to just have some limits about the kind of map drawing you can do and greater protections so that you're keeping the the sort of one other way to think about how you redistrict is you have these principles, like you keep communities together, you draw relatively compact districts, you try to have some kind of geographical integrity instead of these like crazy lines. And some states really do have redistricting processes that emphasize those factors, but other states don't. And so then you end up with these crazy misshapen districts. And what we have left as a protection is this racial gerrymandering protection, which I really think is like on very thin ice right now at the Supreme Court. But I guess what what I heard David saying, which I think is true, is is let's imagine the the motivation stays constant. Let's imagine that they want to racially gerrymander because they want to put all the black voters in one district. But the rest of the country is self-sorting and becoming more concentrated in the way that used to be a way that black voters voted. In other words, black district, black areas were always basically voting for the Democratic Party in this theory. Now that's the true the way other geographical areas vote. In 2012, after the last census, there were 66 districts that we would consider sort of competitive split districts where you had voting for the member of Congress was different than the than the president. With Biden, there were only 17 of those districts. So people are living in a more concentrated fashion. So if I'm gerrymandering purely for the purposes of political power, which is the Supreme Court says is okay, I'm drawing lines now in a way that deals with the fact that people live in concentrated areas. So if somebody accused me, wait a minute, you're dealing with black voters as if they live in a concentrated area and you're minimizing their vote, you would say, hey, I'm just doing the I'm just doing that for purely political reasons, because now everything is geographically condensed. The non-black districts are looking more like the black districts, which creates that fuzziness, which gives somebody an out if the Supreme Court has said, it's okay to, to gerrymander for p- political power reasons and not racial reasons. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that the big sort, the idea that we are sorting as a country into living among people who agree with us along partisan lines, that is absolutely part of gerrymandering. It is also true that following the last census and this census, there is this sophisticated, you know, computer map drawing software that allows you to, like, make these maps however you want. You could just move voters around really quickly. By the way, the notion the Supreme Court said like, oh, Alabama only has a few weeks to redraw the map. It takes them like a day to come up with gazillion maps. Like it's it's really just this pretty instantaneous process. So the truth is, even though we are sorting, if states wanted to draw maps that allowed for more proportional representation, they could do that, right? So like if you have a big city where you have a lot of Democratic voters or a lot of Black voters, you can just like break it up into a lot of pieces. Now, that goes against the principle of keeping compact districts and keeping communities represented together. But if you care about proportional representation, you can totally do that. And the reason you want proportional representation or the reason you want mixing is that it, in theory, creates better outcomes. When you when everybody's in safe districts of homogeneous voters, they can do whatever the hell they want. They can say the 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 gazpacho is coming or the Gestapo is coming, and they know that they are not going to lose a single vote because they're in districts where they're going to win by 10 points uh, by their own party. So the problem is that between self-sorting and gerrymandering, we have these districts yeah. that are basically there's no split-ticket voting. Right, right. 
That's right, John. I mean, that, and the, that's worse than the problem of dividing up communities, right? I mean, I think about this a lot. Like, does it matter if you're the yeah. city of Austin and you have like six or seven members of Congress representing the city of Austin? Or maybe that's good because the city of Austin has lots of representation. I mean, good for the city of Austin. Just to pick out an example, like there's an interesting set of questions about that. Well, but but you're saying, but the city of Austin, they've created six or seven districts in order to divide up the Democratic voters. Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. there are two ways to screw the other party effectively to talk about it in partisan lines. One is you pack all the voters. Cracking and packing. Cracking crackin and packing. Crackin exactly. You pack all the voters into one district and then they only get to elect the candidate of their choice in one place. Or you crack them into lots of different districts and then they can't elect anyone. Can I ask you about the Purcell Doctrine thing, uh, Emily? So as you mentioned, there's a long time before the election. But presumably if if Alabama voters had to deal with you know, two new districts rather than one, the effect of that decision uh, comes into play before election day because people candidates have to run and so forth and so on. So there's not. Um, but the question is, after after a census, new lines are drawn always. So there's always some change before an election. So how how do, is it a completely empty argument made by um, Judge Kavanaugh or or is it just kind of a judgment call? And how do you see it? I mean, I thought it was telling that Justice Kavanaugh kept emphasizing um, March 30th. That is the first day of absentee voting for the primary. And, you know, both Chief Justice Roberts in his concurrence and then the main dissent talked said, well, hey, wait a second, the actual primary date is in May and the general election is in November and those are faraway times. And, you know, even March 30th is not exactly like tomorrow. So I found this to be a pretty vacuous argument, especially because... Because we're in shadow docket land, this is about whether to respect the the decision of the district court, whether to hold, keep the the court that actually like spent time reviewing all the evidence, whether to keep that as the decision that um, determines the shape of the map, as opposed to going with this idea that well, Alabama has a pretty good case for challenging the map, so let's let's do that. Slate. Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. This week, our Slate Plus segment is going to be a John Dickerson special. We're going to talk about what a game or a sport is anyway. It was inspired by a reverie that John had while reading about a game called Eaton Fives. But it will also be encompass the Winter Olympics. It will encompass mind sports. It will encompass all kinds of things. Uh, so go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Become a member today. And you get these bonus segments. You also get so much other stuff. You get to support Slate. Generally, you get exclusive episodes from various Slate shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on podcasts. So slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame 
It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Legitimate political discourse, shouted the mugger as he knocked down the old lady in the street. Legitimate political discourse, cried the school bully as he beat the snot out of a fourth grader. Legitimate political discourse, an absurdist euphemism of a phrase, a creepy bit of linguistic confusion has entered the lexicon this week. The Republican National Committee, the official arm, the official armature of the Republican Party, passed a resolution censuring two House Republican members, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, for participating in the January 6th committee and in passing this censure resolution described the committee as attempting to persecute ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. The RNC says, no, no, what we were talking about were the, not the, not the January 6th protesters. We were talking about other people who were drawn into the dragnet of January 6th and, and you're misreading what we've said, but it is kind of what they said. Uh, but do they should should we mock them for this phrase? Well, there are a lot of things that we should be deeply concerned for about, and and there should be real heavy mocking for me and we, you guys, poor guys, know about this because I wrote about it in the Atlantic this week. The thing to be most mocked for is the fact that Donald Trump, the person who's the leader of the Republican Party and who is likely to be the nominee, is the person that you have the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, the leader of the House Republicans. And now the vice president have all said he is thoroughly unfit for the presidency by the actions he took while he was president. Mike Pence last week said that there was no more un-American thing than what Donald Trump wanted him to do by overturning the election. So you have the leader of a party who's going to be the next nominee who all the leaders of the party say is unfit. That's the thing that to me is the, the, the most cockamamie. With respect to the legitimate political discourse, it is fine in America to gather people together under the under a delusion uh, and rally and be delusional in your rally. There is legitimate political discourse in a campaign. You have debates, you have rallies, you have a lot of big conversation, and everybody settles that legitimate political discourse with a vote. We should note that what they were trying to do is overturn that vote. You're not in great territory. You're also not in great territory when the leader of your party was inciting that riot. That's not me talking that's Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy said he incited that riot. So when you have the leader of your party inciting a riot, it gets really hard to slice the baloney so thin that you say, the thing I'm most concerned about is the name we attach to the people who were just at the rally under this delusion, not the people at the rally who were using fire extinguishers to attack police officers. Like as a political matter, you can't slice the baloney that thin. So Emily, John is 
mentioning that the political leadership, Mitch McConnell this week, did condemn this resolution and and repeated the truth that January 6th was a violent attempt to overturn the legitimate election. Mike Pence uh, said that Trump was wrong. Uh, can you imagine how hard it must have been to say those three words, Trump is wrong? Um, but these are party mandarins. Like, can, can these institutionalists, do these institutionalists actually have any sway in their party? I mean, I think the answer is no. That's why we had this censure. That's why we had this language. And I mean, okay, mock, but this is actually like really alarming, like really grim for the country that this is where we are, that a year on one of the parties is in its entirety and some of its leadership totally committed to just pretending this didn't happen in some way that was dangerous and celebrating and lifting up Donald Trump and it doesn't matter how many lies he tells about this. It doesn't matter how much obfuscating. Like, they're all part of it, and they're just pretending that this, you know, really scary event did not have the meaning that it so obviously had. And this, what's politically crazy about what the RNC did was it seems to me that, that, that the Republican strategy was to let J- January 6th be in the past. It was a bad day, but that was long ago, and Joe Biden's messing everything up, and elect us in the future because we're going to make things better. And who, who put January 6th back on the map? Donald Trump, who continues to say that Mike Pence could have done something, saying it so much and so regularly that Pence felt he had to speak out. Again, as David pointed out, that must have been somewhat difficult given that Mike Pence has been the most loyal person and has in many previous instances where it obviously was a chance to speak out hasn't. And then secondly, you have the RNC raising this out of the blue. Uh, also, they were doing, they were wrapping the knuckles of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, the two members of Congress on the January 6th commission. That was the other thing they did was censure them for not acting in the in the standards of, of Republican members of Congress. So they, these are unforced errors. And January 6th is being rediscussed in current terms. So they're not just trying to forget it. They're basically but, trying to rewrite what happened. But are you so sure that it's an error? I mean, why? I, there is this conviction that oh, this is a, this is an unforced error. This is a known goal. Why would they bring this up? They've coined this phrase, legitimate political discourse. I don't know. I mean, just it like feels like we're we're the stage in American politics where there are no errors anymore because everyone is so tribal. So no matter what you do, your tribe is on your side. Well, absolutely true. I think you're. I think you're exactly right. I think the idea that um, that that what used to hurt you in the past relied on the maintenance of norms of a variety of people we've seen don't maintain those norms. I do think it is a different situation where you have the leader of the Republicans in the Senate calling out basically the leader of the Republican Party. That is new. You also have splits in the party where you have the the Republican Governors Association running ads on behalf of Brian Kemp, the incumbent Georgia governor, against David Perdue, who's running against him in a primary. And part of the reason the, the, the National Gubernatorial Committee has to support its own person against another Republican, which is which is I think it never happened before, is because Donald Trump is supporting David Perdue. And there, these are tensions within the party um, which are causing upset. And the reason they're causing upset in the Senate race is because there are a bunch of races in places uh, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin where Mitch McConnell is worried that a party that gets defined as too thoroughly in the Donald Trump camp will actually lose in those states where, where the electorate is not Holy tribal. So is that why McConnell spoke out? And is that like an effective move for him to make at this point? 
Like, is it enough? Is it anywhere near enough? I mean, I think that is why he spoke out. I think it's a signal, which he has to keep sending, about making sure that Republicans nominate people who can win in those competitive states. So it's not that it changes, but it's a it's a signal to the political insiders. Um, and you saw a number of other senators speak out as well, including Uncle Mitt Romney, who is um, the uncle to the uh, head of the Republican Party, Ron McDaniel, which was a very, um, must have been an interesting text chain, the family text chain. Uh, but um, so I, I, whether it's effective, I don't know. But yes, it's in the context of that, of those places where it's where the races won't be determined wholly by the strength of the Republican Party. Of course, McConnell can't get too far out because he obviously needs, you know, the the Republican base to show up too. Um, although what we call the Republican base is a shifting thing. I mean, there is this desire. I can't like there's some people who want a Republican Party that is Trump. That's most Republicans want a Republican Party where which is led by Trump. Then there's a bunch of people who want Trumpism without Trump because they feel that Trump is toxic. And then there's an increasingly tiny group of people who want neither Trumpism nor Trump and for the Republican Party to, you know, which is Mitch McConnell. I mean, not Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitt Romney and, and a few friends of his. Like, so our choices are a Republican Party, which, which is in the thrall of, of Trumpism. That is our only choice. And then the question is, can you have it with or without Trump? And I guess my hope is that they can somehow find a way to do it without Trump. But it doesn't doesn't look likely at this moment. I would just add one other thing about McConnell. He wants every conversation to be about inflation, crime, the border, and Joe Biden. Have the entire election be, and all the political wins are at his back. So anything that changes the conversation to anything having to do with Donald Trump, who energizes the Democratic Party, is a conversation he doesn't want to have happen. Has there ever been a more effective politician in our lifetime than Mitch McConnell? Has it truly, he's amazing. He is just incredible. Well, yeah, you know, I've made that that point very many times. I mean, the current court is uh, organized because of his work. And I mean, you could argue effective politician for sure. And and I think it's a perfectly defensible case that he basically got Donald Trump elected. The Canadian trucker protests, the freedom convoy that has snarled Ottawa for days, almost two weeks with enormous trucks. These protests are fascinating. Uh, they are also now, in- incidentally, snarling. Not incidentally. They are snarling border crossings in Windsor, Ontario, in Port Huron, uh, may- also in the West, Canadian West. These protests are a confluence of various forces. It's in the immediately, of course, they're truckers who are annoyed with a new vaccine mandate required for border crossing. But then also that flowed into the rise of right-wing populist organizing in Canada, often fueled or funded by Americans, and just a kind of general frustration among a certain relatively small group of Canadians with with the mandates and policies of the Canadian government, the Trudeau government. I have to say, like these, these protests, it must be just a nightmare to be in Ottawa. I live in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. I can imagine it would be a nightmare. But this form of protest is absolutely brilliant. Like, I'm always surprised when someone comes up with a new way to protest. I'm like, wow, this is a really, really great new way to protest. And I can't imagine that the United States is going to escape this. Uh, We are going to have trucker protests in this country really soon. So. So wait, so explain why you think it's brilliant. Because it takes a relatively small number of people. There are only 400 truckers there. 
to cause complete chaos because the trucks are so big, they are basically impossible to move if if their owners refuse to help. They bleed their air brakes, making them locking their wheels, and it is it requires an enormous effort just to move one, let alone 400 of them. And it's just a tiny number of people who are able to do this. And it's very visually effective as well. So it is... Uh, and also truckers... Unlike, like truckers tend to be independent operators, so a lot of them own their rigs. So they're not actually stealing anyone's equipment. They're just taking things that they own and deploying them for a purpose. And it doesn't take them that long. Doesn't it's it, it's just a it's just the amount of chaos you can cause with a very small number of people and relatively a little effort is astonishing. It's very effective. Yeah, it's it's terrifying, actually. I mean, ninety percent of the truckers are vaccinated, apparently. Right. So it's I mean, the outsized. It's not the actual reality, but it seemed like a with the coverage they get and everything else, it sends a, a disproportionately and asymmetrically powerful message. Absolutely, it's, it's, right? It's asymm- I mean, they've shut down. I mean, Ford is shutting down plants. Toyota is shutting right. down plants. The the border crossings. I mean, it's it's just, this part is genuinely ugly, and they will probably regret this. But blocking the actual border crossings, amazingly effective with a very small number of people, and it's already spreading to France, Australia, New Zealand. So it's. It's, uh, I mean, I had the thought actually that what if you were truckers and you decided rather than putting this to the service of fighting vaccine mandates, which maybe is good, you put it to the service of higher wages for truckers. Mm-hmm. Like, could could this could you have a trucker strike that would get you know double trucker wages in a minute just by doing something this disruptive? But feels like you could. Well, except that wouldn't that then rely on? I mean, one of the one of the things that's happening here is that the Canadian truckers are landing in a moment of more of broader fatigue with mandates. There's a fellow feeling, or uh, if not a fellow feeling, a kind of a sympathy for the truckers that you might not have for truckers' wages, which will seem which would seem like special pleading in the case you're talking about. Yeah, probably. I mean, also, they clearly capitalized on the problems and snarls with the supply chain, right? Like, they saw that happening, and they realized they had outsized power, in part because the supply chain is already vulnerable. Do you guys think, and I know none of us is Canadian, and and honestly, don't none of us, I suspect, knows a lot about Canadian politics, but do you think that this will prefigure uh, a, a kind of populist, Trumpist move in Canadian politics, which so far have been relatively free of that. There are a bunch of reasons why Canada has not had quite the far-right thrall that the United States has had. I mean, that they're, the, the main conservative party in Canada has not been captured at all by this group. It's a more polite society. The media, there, there isn't a Fox equivalent with the same kind of power that Fox has in the U.S. Right. Partisanship is not quite an identity. I don't think, I think so much of what's happened here is that people's partisan identity has become their identity. And I don't think that's nearly as true in Canada, like people's political beliefs or whatever. They're a piece of them, but not the whole thing. So I suspect that Canada won't be so toxic, but maybe it will. I think you've answered your essentially answered your own question. They also don't have a primary system of the kind we have, right. which accentuates right. ideological extremism in our in our system. And they also don't have the same level of resentment, race based resentment. There was some in 2010 uh, flare up of this kind with respect to immigration, and it just didn't have the purchase that it has uh, in the United States. I mean, also you'd expect a backlash. From something like this, where you have a very small number of people um, exerting this chokehold right. on 
border crossings and parts of the economy. Although probably people don't care that there's a chokehold on the Capitol, except the people who live in Ottawa. Those people are annoyed. But if you live well, in... yeah. Yeah, but that's but a, they exist. Yeah. What I wonder, though, is this is going to happen more and more because obviously there are American forces, uh, financial and otherwise, that are supporting the Canadian uh, truckers protest f- for the purpose of making an argument in the States. And so we're going to see this globally. It's happening in France. So the question is, is there a formula both for um, misinformation, disinformation, outsized uh, benefit that this is getting, and then therefore, what's the countermeasures? Like, how do you quickly, as a global society, diffuse or or make the case that ninety percent of truckers are vaccinated and there isn't pol- widespread political support for this in Canada, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think what's interesting here is that the you used one of you used the word asymmetry is that the the ability to cause disruption is from a small number of people is profound. And it it turns out that it is much easier to fuck with the society that you live with than it is to make it work better. One of the things that we've seen from right-wing populist movements is this willingness to fuck with the society that they're living in. And so what worries me is you can have, you know, if you look at the, the, the anti-Trump protests and the, the what was the women's march uh, the numbers of people participating were enormous, much greater, but they weren't fundamentally aimed at disruption. The You could argue that maybe the protests after George Floyd, some of those were aimed at disrupting normal life and that those were effective. But I, wor- I worry that, that what we're heading for is not necessarily like a civil war in this country, but a place where forces that want to just mess with the orderly working of daily life, which is what most of us want. Most people just want the orderly working of daily life that those forces are going to just be recognize their power. And what I think what we're seeing in Canada is like, oh yeah, these guys have recognized they have an enormous amount of power to mess with things are going to deploy it. And we're just going to see copycats of different sorts. Not, they won't all be trucker protests. They're going to be different forms, but I don't know what they're going to take. But I do think it's this asymmetrical disruption is where we're headed. They're like the yellow vest movement in France, right? Because they also were like in city centers, making traffic worse. I mean, on a less like intense kill off any movement scale, but similarly, like trying to be sort of vividly present and disruptive. I wonder if in America, we dis we apportion disappointment differently than other cultures and more poorly. So which is to say, if a bunch of truckers showed up in Washington, it'd be interesting to look at what the regulations are for the roads there, because I'm not sure you can drive those big rigs close enough to the White House or the Capitol to have the same effect, although I guess you could drive it in front of the bridges and then screw everything up. But when things go bad, do Americans say, you know, the people who are causing the things to go bad, the truckers, we will evaluate the nature of their claims and decide whether to support them or not? Or do they go, man, it's all snarled, I can't get downtown, and then just blame whoever's in charge. Because if you don't like whoever's in charge, you don't have to have people wrestle with your uh, the validity of the, your underlying views. Mm-hmm. You just have to make life miserable, right, and right, then you right. undermine the person in charge. Right, right, right. I want to close, actually, with one small thing, which I, which I just read this morning. So one of the, one of the things that defined these protests, the, the Ottawa protests, initially, with the, there were air horns all day and night that the truckers used their horns and just caused a huge amount of noise. And a 21-year-old Canadian filed a lawsuit, filed a suit saying this was uh, disruptive and violated noise ordinances and was likely to cause permanent auditory damage to people who were in range of this. 
and won an injunction against the truckers using their horns. And so these, this protest has gone from being constantly a barrage of screeching noise to much less so. And as somebody who feels like no- noise pollution is the great pollution of our time that is unappreciated, uh, I'm just, I'm so with that Canadian. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting in a hopefully deeply soundproofed room, encased in a in a, in a suit of armor made of pillows, what will you be chattering about, Emily? Softly, softly, so softly there chattering. Was a, oh, softly chattering. This is an outrage chatter. Um, this week, Sam Levine, who's a writer for The Guardian, wrote about the case of Pamela Moses, a 44-year-old activist in Memphis who happens to be black, who had a criminal record, went to the probation department to find out if she was eligible to vote, was told, received paperwork that indeed her sentence was finished and she was eligible to vote. This is in 2019. Then she voted. Then it turned out the probation department had given her the wrong information. And Amy Wyrick, the district attorney in Memphis, decided to prosecute her. And this week, Pamela Moses was sentenced to six years in prison for voting when she turned out to be ineligible. And this is just the kind of case that is so alarming in terms of casting a pall on people's voting rights, sending a message that if you have any kind of record, you better not vote because if you get it wrong, you're going to get in big trouble. And it comes in an election year in Memphis. Amy Wyrick, who I wrote about in my book, um, she's the district attorney who prosecuted Nora Jackson, who's one of the characters in my book. Wyrick is up for election this November for the first time in eight years. That's how long the um, term for being the lead prosecutor is in Memphis and Shelby County, which is the district we're talking about here. So it just seems kind of breathtaking that this case is happening right now in Memphis. And I was especially distressed that the response of the judge who sentenced Moses was to say to her, you tricked the probation department into giving you documents saying you were off probation. When as far as I can tell, there's no evidence in this case that Moses knew that the probation department was in error when it gave her these documents. That is stunning. Will this get reversed? Is there no way this gets reversed or anything? I have no idea what is going to happen next. Kudos to Sam Levine for reporting on this, and the story has gotten picked up um, in the Washington Post and on Rachel Maddow. But yeah, it's really distressing. John, what's your chatter? Softly, softly. Uh, my chatter is oh, a part yeah. of the Quiet Storm here on what was the name of the what was the what was the station in DC that had the Quiet Storm? W W K Y S W K Y S. Oh man, on the old on the old uh, alarm clock that had the the little f- paddles that flipped with the time, listening to WKYS. Ugh. Anyway, uh, my I chatter lost, is I lost my 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 real career should have been as a quiet storm DJ. Yeah, exactly. Um, this one's going out to Eleanor. <laughs> anyway, I this know it's raining chatter. where you are, Eleanor, but the sun's coming out in the morning. My chatter is about a... Um, it's another a... Wyndham Hill hit. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, is it another my chat- song from George right. Oh, my God. Okay. Someone <laughs> stuffed a tomato in his mouth. Um, so my chatter is um, about the If by Whiskey speech, which uh, came to my mind when I was writing the kicker for my Atlantic piece, which was about... Well, you can read the piece. Anyway, the If by Whiskey speech 
is a favorite of mine. Everybody probably knows it. It comes from Mississippi. Um, Mississippi in the 1950s was still a is the last state to be to allow alcohol to allow whiskey. It was a dry state, and so when you were running for the um, state house, you would when you campaigned, somebody would often yell out, "How do you feel about whiskey?" while you were campaigning, um, and it was a problem because. People wanted you to be against whiskey, but there was whiskey all throughout the state. Anyway, there's a famous speech by a, a member of Congress, Noah Sweat, who was known as Soggy Sweat, not because apparently uh, he was in favor of he was a wet or in favor of drinking, but because his it derived from the fact that his hair resembled the, a sugarcane tassel, uh, a sorghum top, which um, apparently is why they called him Soggy. Anyway, the the I won't read you the whiskey speech, but you should go read it because. It basically goes like this. Noah served, uh, I mean, um, sorry, uh, uh, Sweat served one term um, in the legislature and then became a judge and then a, t- and then a law professor. And he, this was his, I think, the last speech he ever gave, although there's some confusion that he might have said this at a rally. But he said, my friends, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, I want you to know I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take my stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey. All right, this is how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and the woman from the pinnacle of righteousness, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philo- philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, that puts the song in the hearts and laughter in the lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the sim- stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, of life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which puts into our treasuries untold millions of dollars which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our <laughs> (laughs) deaf, our dumb, our pitiful, aged, and infirm to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. I I did. Oh my God, John Dickerson. That was like the perfect marriage of a soliloquy and your skills. Um, I did end up reading it all, I guess. And Um, predilections. Go to um, YouTube if you'd like to see John Grisham read it, because John Grisham, it turns out, was a law assistant for... Um, soggy sweat. Um, and so he reads it in the most pleasant and lovely Southern accent. Well, I hate to follow that one. But yeah, right. <laughs> all right. My chatter is just to go check out this photo that you probably have seen. But if you haven't, there's a photo of uh, Putin and Macron <laughs> at their negotiating table. So Macron went to Russia to meet with Putin to attempt to negotiate a diplomatic end to the Ukraine crisis. And Putin is sitting at one end of a long white table. When I say long, I mean literally like a 50-foot long table. And Macron is sitting at the other. They are barely within shouting distance, let alone talking distance. And it is, it's just a hilarious photograph of your, your, your sense like, oh, this is, this is definitely not a negotiation that's going well. This is not a negotiation of intimates. I felt like the Macron was just trying to stay out of Novichuk range. He just wanted to avoid the Novichuk-tipped <laughs> fork that Putin might stab in his direction. It probably is just Putin's uh, 
germ phobia. Putin is a notorious germ phobe and he's really paranoid about COVID. So maybe that's really what it I is. I really but, like the rug and the floor design. Oh my gosh. The, the whole curtains room, are terrible. The whole though. room is crazy. Uh, but I, my immediate thought was like, oh, this is what this is, is this is the Duke and Duchess of Granchester having an intimate meal circa 1898. It was just, <laughs> it, was just like, it really looked like some, some stuffy English lord, except updated with hideous Russian furnishings. And it was mostly humiliating for Macron, I, I assume. It was humiliating for Macron. But anyway, check out that photo. Listeners, you send chatters to us, and we love to hear your chatters, and then we love to hear from you about them. So please tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest, or email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. And this week, we have one from Kaysen Riley. Hi, GabFesters. This is Kaysen Riley calling from Stanford, California. My chatter is about Sue Gray, a UK civil servant and author of The Gray Report, the inquiry into Boris Johnson's pandemic parties. As recent profiles, including a great video from the BBC detail, Gray is the daughter of Irish parents and joined the civil service straight out of high school. She took a break in the 1980s to run a pub in Northern Ireland before rising to the highest levels of civil service, and she seems to have been involved in every major internal government investigation in recent decades. While someone like Gray would almost certainly fail to receive a presidential appointment or pass Senate confirmation in the U.S., I think it's pretty cool that a non-university-educated, non-partisan, pub-managing and corruption-busting public servant can make it to and remain at the highest levels of government service in Britain. The thing I liked about this chatter Kaysen elaborated on an email to us is just that this idea of the bureaucrat, the, the powerful bureaucrat, is one that's much stronger in a parliamentary government like England. And in, the, in, the Europe, in Europe, generally, there are these bureaucrats who sort of stay in service for long periods of time. And we ha- I guess Tony Fauci kind of is that for the US. That Tony Fauci has a, sort of has that role here, although clearly controversial. But we don't have those same kind of figures. And it's nice to think that there are these government bureaucratic celebrities. We should have bureaucratic celebrities. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there or email chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Man, John Dickerson is truly in his, the heights of John Dickersonianism this week <laughs> after that chatter. That chatter uh, that John just gave us was so uh, such a pinnacle of Dickerson. But he now brings us this other delight for Slate Plus. John, tell us what you want us to talk about. Yeah, help me here when I stumble because okay. I, okay. <laughs> this was a real this is a real shaggy dog um, chatter. Sure. So I was reading the Oxford Book of English Prose, and there's a uh, an essay in there by William Hazlitt on John Kavanaugh. So the reason I thought it was interesting is he writes about John Kavanaugh, who played fives, and then there's this passage: "He who takes playing at fives is twice young. He feels neither the past nor the future in the instant. Debts, taxes, domestic treason, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further." which is basically a, 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 um, a description of flow, as some of you may um, remember. And anyway, I, I was reading along, and I thought, what the hell is Fives? Looked it up on YouTube. Fives is a game. It's known most popularly as Eaton Fives because it was played at Eaton School. And it's essentially a kind of handball played in a very narrow court. And part of the court, if just so just imagine a kind of a squash court, but made of concrete and brick, and you would see it on a public outdoor court. 
kind of on the left-hand side as you face the wall is a notch that uh, that sticks out and it's basically the the vestige of or or replicating the first place this was played which was at a church and the notch was part of the church's architecture it was played i think between the buttresses of the church I watched three videos on it. It's very pleasing to watch those videos. I have no idea what the objective of the game is because none of them explain what the objective was. It was all, it was amazing. I mean, at some point I thought I'm going to spend my whole life searching out the objective of Eaton Fives. But it got me to thinking, what constitutes a game? And what is the minimum requirement for something to be a legitimate game? Which this is a legitimate game. There are teams and there's there's uniforms and these special gloves. So I asked, I posed that to my colleagues here about what makes a legitimate game because that often is brought up in the Olympic context. Okay. I just, so I had about a 45 minute conversation with my girlfriend about this last night. And I'm obsessed with this question because I feel that the Winter Olympics is filled with sports and games that are not actually competitions that are, that are not Bring sports. It. Okay. To me, there's a continuum. Obviously, everything is, you know, there Hockey is a game. What, going for sport? a stroll is probably not a game, but hockey is clearly a game or sport. I mean, game and sport also, that's different things. To me, it's like when you think about what is it what is what are the com- necessary elements? The necessary elements are some element of physical or potentially mental sort of uh, uh, challenge to yourself. Chess. Uh, yeah, chess is a Game. mind sport. Some element of competition, that there has to be somebody who wins or who, who does better and somebody who does worse. Um, and and that, that you have to actually, that what you do has to affect the other competitors. That, to me, is the key thing. So when I think about downhill skiing, luge, uh, skeleton. Um, What's that? Skeleton is sledding. It's like luge, oh. but on your stomach. Uh, bobsled. Those are not sports or games because you are just completely – what you do has nothing to do with how other people do. You have no impact on them. You're just racing against a, a time – you're racing for time, and you can do better or worse. You can have a faster or slower score. But that you're actually not interacting with other human beings as you do it. You're just you're, – you're, you are engaged in a solitary pursuit. To me – Wait a, a second. This has one captures a lot of sports. What about swimming? What about swimming? ice skating? What about gymnastics? That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash plus and become a member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>